Welcome to the 16th episode of the Sound of the Foghorn podcast, Fansite's official San Francisco Giants podcast. I'm your host, Mark DeLuke, and today I am joined with Giants beat writer for the Bay Area News Group, Kerry Crowley. Kerry, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent, Mark. Nice to talk to you, and nice to be back as a repeat guest. Looking forward to this. Yes, I believe you are the first repeat guest on the podcast. So, you know, I don't know if I'll throw an applause soundtrack in here or something. <laughs> nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> well but anyway I, we're talking now and you are in uh, Scottsdale Arizona you haven't gotten to go to the Giants team facility yet but you will um, relatively shortly so can you kind of give fans a little uh, I guess window into you know how is your spring training coverage this season going to differ from spring trainings in the past yeah, spring training's always been my favorite time of year, Mark, because everyone's so loose, they're so laid back, and they're a lot more willing to share information with you. And so I think as a reporter, it's always been the most valuable time of the year because you get to show up at, you know, 8 30, 9 o'clock every day, roam the clubhouse for an hour, talk to just about everyone uh, over the course of the spring, you know, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes here, and just a, a quick hello to some of the non-roster invitees, uh, whether that happens in the first week of the spring or the last, once you get a feel for whether they will be impacting the Giants or not. But this year, we're going to lose that person-to-person communication. Everything will be done over Zoom, at least at the beginning of the spring. There's still hope that we might be able to do some one-on-one, very distanced interviews at the end. But uh, I'm not quite yet optimistic about that. But as for the day-to-day stuff, uh, I, I really feel it's important to be here just because these games are not broadcast on the radio. They're not broadcast on television. And you learn a lot about the state of the San Francisco Giants through spring training. I don't need to know what Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt are doing per se, but it will be really nice to keep tabs on Marco Luciano, on Hunter Bishop, on Sean Jelly, and some of these prospects coming through the system. And then, of course, the non-roster guys who will be pitching in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh innings early in the spring, competing for bullpen jobs. And I'm sure we'll get into that, but it is really nice to be here and to be able to watch the workouts, watch the games, and provide some analysis for fans who can't be here. Definitely. And, you know, you mentioned non-roster invitees are going to be competing for bullpen jobs because at least at the moment, barring injuries or some unexpected transaction, it seems like all the guys who are going to be in the rotation are in camp um, on, on big league deals. You know, the last time you were on, we ended, I, I believe I asked you, you know, who did you think was going to be the Giants rotation? I think you had Caleb Berger in there as an opener. You had Corey Kluber is a potential free agent <laughs> signing. And, you know, obviously, you know, you didn't get that one correct necessarily, but, you know, the kind of tone of what kind of move that was was something we saw, you know, the Giants really triple dip in this offseason. Obviously, they brought back Kevin Galsman on a qualifying offer. You know, Johnny Cueto's still under contract. Logan Webb's still under team control. And then they went and signed Alex Wood, Anthony DiSclefani, and Aaron Sanchez, three pitchers with, varying you know degrees of uh, long histories of volatility but um also with you know various reasons that the giants might be able to convince themselves that they can turn them into really um strong contributors you know what are your thoughts on this rotation you know how do you see this rotation shaking out well unfortunately the around the foghorn podcast was not one of the places that i predicted alex wood to the giant <laughs> because i really did try to do that in as many spots as possible so i guess this was one of the Corey kluber spaces and hey i got one of them right and so uh, i did try to tout those names throughout the off season but yeah i do think that it's an interesting group uh, particularly when you look at all of the volatility because anthony di ERA above seven last year alex wood only made two starts last year 
for the Dodgers, wasn't quite healthy. And then you look at Aaron Sanchez, and he hasn't been good since 2016 or 2017. And so a guy coming off of shoulder surgery, can you really pencil him in for more than 80 to 100 innings? I'm not so sure. And so I think that this Giants rotation is going to be one that evolves over the course of the season. And maybe what we see on opening day will be nothing like what we see come August or September. And that's going to be a fascinating storyline to follow is keeping tabs on the pitchers at AAA who ultimately impact the Giants uh, in 2021. Is it Anthony Banda, who has some major league experience with the Tampa Bay Rays and Arizona Diamondbacks? Is it Connor Menez, Caleb Berger, who could both open the season in the AAA rotation if they continue to project as starting pitchers over the course of the spring? And so Tyler Beatty is another name who we will be following very closely, even though we know he won't be in the opening day rotation as he comes back from Tommy John surgery. So I do think that the Giants have provided a little bit of a guard against all of the volatility by having that second layer of depth, Mark. But what I would add to that is I'm not so sure that the second layer of depth isn't as volatile as the first. And so they've got these eight to 10 pitchers here who, who could really make an impact in the rotation. And we know kind of who those four or five will be at first. Uh, but yeah, I, I think so much of this team's success and ability to exceed expectations is dependent on getting really strong starts at the beginning of the season, at least out of DeSclafani, out of Wood, and then Aaron Sanchez, if he is in that role. And you know, one name you didn't mention that is Logan Webb. And that was one thing about the Aaron Sanchez signing. And, and you know, we'll circle back to why I, I do understand the fit, why I actually think it makes sense for the team. But it did kind of strike me as surprising, particularly because it was a major league contract. It seemed pretty clear that he's going to get every opportunity, at least early on, to be in that rotation is that is five guys. And again, there's a lot of injury history, a lot of age here. So obviously, you know, there's a relatively high chance that one might be on the injured list to start the season. And that solves this problem. But assuming not, assuming they're all healthy, where does that leave Logan Webb? Uh, that's a really tough question to answer right now. And I do want to say that even though the Giants have not officially signed Aaron Sanchez, or they're in the process of making that official, uh, immediately when that news broke, when it became apparent that Aaron Sanchez was going to be a Giant, he put it out on his Instagram story for everyone. So it's no secret. Uh, they immediately began talking up Logan Webb and talking about all the ways that Logan Webb can make an impact this year and how he's got the power arm and how he's got an elite level changeup that they think that if he's able to locate it for strikes and potentially below the strike zone, he could be really effective with that. They think that he will take another step forward now that he's accustomed to throwing from the arm angle that Brian Bannister helped refine him with last season. And so I thought that that was a little bit interesting because to me, it says they're trying to uh, inspire some confidence in Logan Webb and they still view him as part of that fifth starter competition. As for Aaron Sanchez, I think that he very well could go the way of Drew Pomeranz in 2019, mm -hmm. where April, May, he is in the rotation while Logan Webb is refining uh, his arsenal down at AAA Sacramento, could very well see that. And then regardless of how Sanchez is performing, he's got a fastball that was recently spotted in bullpens, at least when the Giants scouted him, up to 97, 98 miles an hour. And with the curveball that he showed in 2016, if he's able to get anything like that out of his curve this year, that is Drew Pomeranz out of the bullpen. That's a right-handed power arm who can give you the seventh, who can give you the eighth, potentially give you the ninth, and potentially be an asset you could dangle at the trade deadline. So definitely see the intrigue and why the Giants pursued him. And I think that Sanchez may even sign for really, really similar uh, value that uh, what Pomeranz got back in 2019. Yeah, and, and those contracts, I think, are pretty similar in deal. I want to say Sanchez is one year four, and I think Pomeranz was one year three, if I can mm -hmm. run the top of my head. But um, 
the the thing too is while we can focus on Sanchez as that fifth starter, like you mentioned, Spafani's coming off a seven ERA and as consistent as he was before. Obvious questions there. Wood, you mentioned, only made two starts. And again, the one player who wasn't a free agent, the holdover Johnny Cueto, is as far away from you know his peak performance as Aaron Sanchez is. I think I, I agree in the sense I, I think there's a pretty good chance Webb will start the year at triple a because I just don't think the way the giants are talking about it, that it's, he seems like someone they're going to want to, you know, push to the bullpen mm-hmm. to fill a short-term role like they did with someone like Connor Menez or Caleb Berger, because I, I do think there's a tendency while Berger, it seems like it's going to try to start and get an opportunity to start this spring. You know, once you move to the bullpen, it's, it's, it's unusual to see someone return. And what I think they could also view this. I think they might be is we're going to wait this out because I can talk you and you can talk your readers into, you know, Cueto and Gaussman and Wood and DeScafani <laughs> and Sanchez all being good in their own way. But there's also in that, like the odds of all five hitting are, are nearly zero, right? Like oh, the yeah, fact is there's, there's going to be at least one, potentially even two or three who aren't able to bounce back, right? Even if Alex Wood's really good and Johnny Cueto bounces back, DeScafani and Sanchez may plateau or, or vice versa in all sorts of ways. And so, yeah, Webb is definitely going to get an opportunity, I think, to start. It's just a question of sort of how they maneuver, you know, from on opening day and in, in the weeks that follow. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And that's why I'm terming this the boomer bust starting rotation, because there is so much variance in how we could see performances at the beginning of the season. But one thing that I do think is worth pointing out is, you know, come May, they will have Tyler Beatty at their disposal. Yeah. Come June, Logan Webb or Anthony Bander or Connor Menez could all be ready to go. You know, come August, you could you could see Sean Jelly or Tristan Beck ready to make the jump to the major league level. And so there will be reinforcements along the way, which is why I think April, May, June, the Giants are going to have to win games with their bullpen, which is what we saw them do for probably a five to six week stretch during the 2020 season. I mean, they had the best bullpen in the major leagues over the final 40 games of the year from an ERA standpoint. And that's why I think their bullpen coming out of the gates is going to have to be really strong. And in the past, we've seen Farhan Zaidi kind of feel his way through the beginning of the season with the bullpen. Whereas I think it's going to be the opposite this year with the giants feeling their way through the beginning of the season with their starters and really relying on a lockdown bullpen, which is why I do think we've seen a few more investments in guys like Jake McGee and Matt Whistler to support the cast of characters down there that they've already got, who could be really strong. And guys like Reyes Maranta, Wandy Peralta, who you and I are both really high on. Yeah, I was going to say, we have, this is the uh, the Giants bullpen defenders podcast right now <laughs> with you and I, because I know we've been pretty adamant about this. And I, I was going to say is, I think the bullpen overall last season, even though it began and ended on a really sour note, was a, a net positive for the team last season. And I think it, and it's even stronger heading into spring training. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, with all of the signings, they have made at the major league level, but also at the minor league level. I mean, this is this is a stacked bullpen, you know, potential bullpen coming in. And obviously there's going to have to be players who don't make it. And I imagine some might even have opt-outs if they don't make the opening day roster to become free agents, which might limit some of that depth that we could see potentially being there now. But, you know, when we talk about like a Silvino Bracco or a Jay Jackson or a Dominique Leone, and there's a number of other players they've brought in. I really like the depth of this bullpen. And it almost becomes the question of how are they then going 
to approach again, how big is that bullpen going to be? And that's why, again, some people I think have mentioned the idea of a six man starting rotation to start the season where they can actually keep Logan Webb with those five starters. The reason I'm kind of cooler on that prospect is because I think they're going to value an additional reliever more than that additional starter. What do you think about that? Well, I actually completely agree with that. And that's why I think that they are actually more likely to use a four man starting rotation than a six man starting rotation out of the gates. You look at this schedule for the giants, they're opening the season, three games in Seattle, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, then they've got an off day Sunday. Then they play three more against the San Diego Padres. And then they play a six game homestand against the Rockies and the reds. And they can do a piggyback start on one of those days. Maybe they have someone like Alex Wood followed by Aaron Sanchez coming out of the bullpen. And at that point, you wouldn't need a Logan Webb on the major league roster. You wouldn't need five starters on the major league roster. You could go with a nine or even a 10 man bullpen. If you want to get really extreme, I think a nine man is probably more likely given all the guys who have options, who the giants can just send down to triple a and shuttle back and forth. But the six man doesn't make sense to me, at least at the outset of the season. Yeah. And that's where you get into the, again, the giants are losing two roster spots and every team is losing, you know, two roster spots because the league is returning to the 26 man active roster, you know, various labor reasons there they extended the, to 28 man last year for COVID. They did not are not going to do that this year. So all teams are going to have to work with two fewer roster spots and the giants have particularly taken advantage of every roster spot they can find through mm-hmm. shuffling people through the minor leagues and major leagues, especially towards the back end of the bullpen. And we've, I remember us talking about before the off season began that, you know, we couldn't envision a roster with Donovan Solano, Wilmer Flores, Darren Ruff, Brandon belt, because just <laughs> the depth of first base, they're all still there. And you've added Tommy Lastella to that mix and Jason Voster to that mix. And again, you know, each have some more positional flexibility elsewhere. But when you're thinking about, again, if they're going to carry 13, possibly 14 pitchers, you're wondering kind of what is going to have to give. Are they going to not carry a defensive center, a backup center fielder? Is Mike Yastrzemski going to have to function in that role? Are they going to, you know, again, make some late game, you know, late in spring training trade of Darren Ruff for a lower level prospect? Or, or are they going to do something um, with the rotation? It's really just all these options out there, but something's going to have to give. Yeah, right now, the position player side of the roster is it, it doesn't seem sustainable to no. me that you could go into the season with Mauricio Dubon being your only center fielder and really the only backup shortstop you trust. And so where does that work? Because the Giants definitely did not trust Donovan Solano at that position last year, and they don't have any other you know, obvious backup. Abiatal Avellino is no longer with this organization. I don't know where he is. I wish him good luck, but that guy at least could be a backup shortstop for the Giants and he's no longer there. And so they have already begun talking up Mike Yastrzemski as a backup center field option. And they said that the numbers and the advanced analytics were not kind to Yastrzemski, but if he gets to three or four more balls and plays them well, they said that that would have flipped last year. And so I am really curious if they will give Yastrzemski a long look because there's no question, Mark, it changes the dynamics of the outfield if Mike Yastrzemski is able to play a serviceable center field. It allows them to put three left-handed hitters in the lineup uh, in the outfield, whether you want to put Alex Dickerson out there, Yastrzemski out there, uh, maybe Lamont Wade in one of the corners. I I don't know, but Lamont Wade certainly seems like he could be ticketed for AAA at this point, guy who they recently acquired from Minnesota Twins, who's got some serious upside. And so I I just think that there's a few more things that they have to iron out. But like we said at the beginning of this offseason, and this was before they acquired Tommy Lestella, 
how is this sustainable in the infield? Can they do this without a DH with Donovan Solano, Wilmer Flores, both playing the same position? And I just think that come the end of the spring, if everyone is healthy and the Giants, of course, had had struggles getting everyone healthy at the beginning of the season, they're going to have to make some sort of a move, some sort of a minor trade, whether it's a need for need move to pick up a starting pitcher or another reliever somewhere on this roster, the position player thing has to iron itself out. Yeah, or even I think you could see them making a move we have not seen Zaidi do. In fact, we've seen the opposite, him taking advantage of teams having to clear spots on the 40-man roster. I could see Ruff or you know someone you know along those lines getting moved for a very low-level prospect, maybe not someone mm-hmm. of the prestige Giants fans I want, but because they don't have to be on the 40-man roster, that would open up a spot to potentially add, again, one of these non-roster invitee relievers, you know, whether that is a Leone or Jay Jackson or, or you know, take your pick of, I think, the dozen or so guys in camp who you can make a case for. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Avelino who signed a minor league deal with the Cubs. And I'm going to use that. There you as, go. <laughs> as, I'm going to use that as a segue because the one, you know, every, you know, this is partially the, you know, Brian Sabian, Bobby Evans, uh, you know, growing up with that front office where you're, you know, you're kind of always looking for that Justin Maxwell and Brandon Hicks to, you know, crack camp. With the team, the guy I see on the position player side who most intrigues me is a former Cubs top prospect, Aris Mendy Alcantara, who is a switch hitter, has played every outfield position, has played every infield position, was developed as a shortstop. He's probably not elite defensively at any spot. But as recently as 2019 at AAA, he hit 290. He had a four, over 400 slugging. He stole 20 bases and played all over the field defensively. Like that's a kind of piece where it's like, again, We've talked about this roster crunch already. I don't know how you solve it, but if you find a way to get him on the roster, that gives you a lot of flexibility, I think, to then be able to, you know, have some weirder machinations elsewhere because you go, all right, we have this one guy who can pretty much be a backup everywhere if we need it. Yeah, this is why I love talking Giants baseball with you, Mark, because I don't know basically anything about (laughs) Alcantara. Yet you're able to give me the full rundown of what positions he plays, how he can back up everywhere. Literally the one anecdote that I've got on the guy is that before the A's gave Max Muncy a shot back in like 2016, they gave Alcantara a shot Mm -hmm. and neither player ended up working out for Oakland, but Max Muncy ended up working out elsewhere as a Farhan Zaidi guy. And who knows, maybe Alcantara could work out as a Farhan Zaidi guy. So I've got that in my back pocket. If Alcantara does end up helping the Giants this season, he will be getting the Max Muncy A's story, and I will be writing that. So be on the lookout. (laughs) Uh, But other than that, I've I've really got nothing on the guy other than that you're right. Yeah, I mean, he is the one guy who can solve a lot of these issues. He can be the Kike Hernandez for this team that Kike was for the Dodgers and now will be for the Red Sox, where you just go out and play him a bunch of different spots. Center field probably not being one of them, but providing the depth and quality depth at so many different positions. Yeah, it's always interesting. I mean, Guys like Alcantara are eternally interesting to me when a guy is a top prospect, always performs at double and triple A, and just it never seems to translate. And to, to be fair, he's gotten like 500 plate appearances, I want to say at this point in the bigs, and just hasn't hit enough. But, you know, a guy with speed, a guy who's hit for a decent amount of power, triple A, a guy with that kind of pedigree and flexibility is just eternally intriguing to me. But again, aside from that, and that's where, again, we get into this kind of, simultaneous roster crunch but also like roster limitation in that we have a, we have more than 26 players deserving of big league roster spots in camp but there probably aren't necessarily more than two shortstops 
Mm-hmm. And depending on your thoughts on Jalen Davis, Lamonte Wade, and Steven Duggar, uh, I guess Alcantara and Jason Krizan, although I don't think they're really factoring <laughs> in. Um, but depending on your thoughts on them, potentially only one or two defensive center fielders. So it, it, it again becomes this give and take where where are the Giants going to essentially have to make sacrifices? Yeah, and that's why – I really did want to be at spring training this year. You know, we had tough conversations about whether it was safe to send me, whether it was worth it to send me with my paper. But I thought the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh innings of these spring training games are where the Giants are going to learn a whole lot, not just about their immediate presence in terms of April and May and how they build this roster, but almost in terms of building their future because they're going to need guys to play center field beyond Mauricio Dubon and Mike Yastrzemski. Elliot Ramos is going to get reps there this year. Hunter Bishop will probably get reps there this year in spring training. And we're going to see, is center field going to continue to be this problem for the Giants down the line? Or are they going to come up with some sort of a solution this year right out of the gates that gets them out of the trouble that they've been in for so long, particularly toward the end of Bruce Bochy's era where they just didn't have anyone competent enough to cover center field and shortstops the other spot where, you know, for years, Brandon Crawford has watched the Giants draft shortstop after shortstop (laughs) and be told that his time is coming. His time is up. And Crawford, you know, he's, he's so good natured about it. He always laughs and says, yeah, I mean, they've been, they've been telling me my replacements on the way ever since I got here. And now a decade in uh, his replacement still isn't here. And Marco Luciano is finally that guy. But again, is Luciano a shortstop? Short Gabe Kapler yep. was already talking about it today that they are determined <laughs> to make sure that his training program includes the agility and flexibility drills to make sure that he stays at shortstop in the long term because the Giants as an organization just have not been able to give Crawford even a quality backup at the major league level. I mean, fans are yearning for Kelby Tomlinson, Mark. There's just, it's fascinating to see how these issues have evolved over the years. And uh, I mean, I guess, you know, if Marco Gonzalez is the opening day starter in Seattle for, uh, for the Mariners, the Giants probably won't have Alex Dickerson in the opening day lineup, which could mean a 14th consecutive year with a new left fielder. So again, another storyline to watch. Yeah. And, and, with that, you know, we assume that Slater would be the starter in that spot, but I think he's a really interesting guy. I just put a piece up on over at around the Foghorn where I was looking at kind of the six competitions to watch in spring training. And one of them, I think, is the potential Slater roster spot because he is kind of currently that like fifth outfielder, third first baseman spot. And obviously he had a breakout 2020 in a lot of ways, but obviously had that elbow injury that limited him the DHing and then he, you know, underwent an operation in the off season. And, you know, if he looks like he did in early 2020, it's a wrap. That's his roster spot undeniably. But I think it's, you know, hard to be entirely confident even in his place. And again, if we're talking about someone like Darren Ruff, what's their avenue to the roster? I think that's one where, again, like this camp is going to, I think, have big implications on the, is Slater. Are they final? Are they set that he's going to be, you know, essentially an everyday guy in that, you know, Slackerson platoon uh, as Grant Brisby uh, coined it over the <laughs> athletic, or are they going to continue to oscillate for other options? I, it's funny you bring up Austin Slater in this conversation, because I think of him as the same way I think of Wandy Peralta in that I appear to be higher on these two guys than just about anyone else who covers the Giants. I am a big believer in Austin Slater's potential to impact the roster. I'm a big believer that Wadi Peralta can be, 
you know, the, the Swiss army knife for this giants bullpen and be deployed in a variety of situations as a high strikeout guy, as a fireman, as someone who can go multiple innings at a time. And so it, it's almost harder for me to come up with evaluations out of that. I've seen these guys for the past few seasons relative to how everyone else thinks about them, because, you know, the, every writer, every uh, media analyst, every broadcaster always has players that they seem to value above others. And in my eyes, Slater is, is just, a fit for this team. He does mm -hmm. everything they want uh, out of a guy who's right-handed in the outfield, can play left, can play right, has a great arm when it's healthy, uh, can hit at the top of the order, tremendous plate discipline, has improved his launch angle. To me, he has done everything in the eyes of this front office to make himself a part of the next Giants core. And so I don't look at him in that competition, but I know that he is in a competition for the roster spot. I know that he does have to continue to prove his value on a daily basis, particularly during the spring. And so that's why he's another guy who will be interesting to watch. Yeah, and that's also be because, again, we're say it, we'll say it 17 times here, is that this weird amount of depth in certain areas. Slater, at least as far as we know, he's not playing center field. And that means he's one of the slew of guys who can play in the corner outfield. And again, Lamonte Wade Jr., although he's a left-handed hitter, Jalen Davis, while he does have reverse splits as a right-handed hitter, both players that this front office has acquired, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, do they, are they in the, the mix, I think undeniably they are what, where the front office, you know, views them relative to Slater in the end of this season, the end of next season is obviously pretty impossible for us to know from the outside looking in, but it is again, this constant question of, again, I just keep saying it, right. What, what's going to give, because <laughs> there's going to have to be choices. And I think, I, th saw, I think I saw you say you're very high on the chances of the Sacramento river cats team. And I think we're, we're getting, sort of to the crux of why I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think a lot of people should be, I don't think Vegas has odds on them. The Sacramento river cats wins and losses, they should, but, though. They but should. If, yeah, if they did, I think, you know, <laughs> we'd be, that'd be a, a best bet situation because again, we're talking about these guys where, you know, I would not, if Slater is on the injured list and Jalen Davis is in his roster spot, I feel pretty good about that. I don't, you know, I don't feel like that's pushing it. I don't feel like, you know, that's going back to the days where Brian Bocock is starting shortstop <laughs> for the giants because they don't have other options. Right. And he has to get sort of forced up. And even to a certain extent, Crawford, right. was a similar situation where he got promoted before he was, you know, clearly ready as a hitter. And that's why kind of this bat had to develop over time. But, you know, that's not the case for the Giants. And that means that AAA roster is going to have a lot of guys who are probably deserving of big league opportunities. So, yeah, three words for you. Luis Alexander Basave. Yeah, there I you mean, go. That, that guy is going to be roaming center field for AAA. And he's going to be someone who could very easily force his way back onto this Giants roster and could very easily help this Giants club in 2021. And I think that it was probably just because when a guy is DFA'd and goes unclaimed, it's always going to be under the radar. But that was a sneaky under the radar good thing that happened to the Giants this offseason is that Basabe was not claimed on waivers when they did expose him. And now they've got an opportunity to develop the bat. He's a switch hitter. And I am excited to see what he can do in center field. And so we're talking about a triple A outfield that could include, you know, Steven Duggar, Lamont Wade, uh, Austin Slater. Uh, Luis Alexander Basabe, and then eventually Elliot Ramos. I do think that he will probably start the season in double A, but when he comes up, he will have an everyday spot in triple A. And so you go around the diamond, you talk about that pitching staff that we've talked about. Uh, the River Cats could be loaded this year. And I, I don't, I think it's Sutter Health Park. That's going to be a place, you know, if they're allowing uh, 300 fans, that's going to be a good place to spend your time if you're a fan. Yeah. And, you know, talking about, the pitching staff, I do want to circle back to one thing is, you know, again, as we've leaped 
uh, heaped praise on onto the potential for this bullpen. A lot of Giants fans I know are going to be asking us, but who's the closer? Oh. Uh, and, and this goes back to a classic, you know, where you stand on this debate about whether you need one or whether, you know, your high leverage guys rotation. How do you think that um, ends up shaking out? I wrote about in my competition piece, I said, I think, you know, Jake McGee's probably a pretty clear favorite, but you obviously have Reyes Maranta, some holdovers like Sam Selman, Tyler Rogers, who were effective last year. How do you think uh, that, that plays out this season? Yeah, I think at the beginning of the season, we're going to see Jake McGee probably get the lion's share of the reps, but it would not shock me at all if Tyler Rogers was someone that they felt comfortable with in the ninth inning. Uh, it would not shock me at all if, uh, you know, Sam Selman or Wandy Peralta even worked their way into that role because they're theoretically ready to take steps forward. And so I think that that will be interesting. But Maranta is the X factor. Actually, mm-hmm. I take that back. Camilo mm-hmm. Duvall is the X factor. Oh, that's a good point. Camilo Duvall is ready. And there's a very good chance he could be because the Giants were essentially ready to put Camilo Duvall on the roster for the final week of the regular season in 2020. Then he could be the guy who could very quickly by May or June ascend to that ninth inning role. I don't think that they would throw him into the fire right away, but this is a dude who throws high nineties with cut. He is someone who Gabe Kapler has said, as long as he's near the strike zone, we will take that. And when you throw stuff like that, when you have, pitches that if they can get close to the strike zone and they're effective that tells you how nasty you can be and so Camilo Duvall Reyes Maranta kind of cut from that same cloth where Maranta doesn't have to throw the best of strikes but he can be effectively wild and effectively effective in that regard so those two guys to me are the ones to watch if the Giants hope to have someone really challenge Jake McGee for that ninth inning yeah and I think one thing you can read in a bit too much I think to how uh, much a carousel it was in that ninth inning for the Giants last season. Because if you look at it, before Trevor Gott had his you know three consecutive blown saves, Gabe Kapler was pretty consistent. Gott was getting pretty much every save opportunity to start the year. Then obviously he blew up and they had to, they went in a different direction. And then Tony Watson was kind of in there, but they didn't want to. They clearly were averse to pitching him on back to back days. And so it did seem like something that again, if Got is reasonably effective, or even if Reyes Maranta is healthy to start the season, if you know Reyes Maranta doesn't have that shoulder injury the end of the previous season, you know, heading into last year, the Giants bullpen had no one that was coming off an elite season, right? Yeah. And, and Maranta was really the only one the previous year, and obviously he'd had the shoulder surgery. This year, Jake McGee is coming off an elite year, and I, I do think they're I, at least I would be surprised if we see as aggressive uh, musical chairs in that ninth inning, assuming um, McGee is effective. I do think Kapler is going to be more prone to, again, if there's a three right-handed hitters or a certain matchup that maybe Tyler Rogers or someone else because of some weird um, particularity gets an opportunity. But I think you're going to see more of, all right, this is the guy who's going to get 80 to 90% of these opportunities. Yeah, and, and I'll say this about the ninth inning, and this is my personal philosophy after listening to Bruce Bochy talk about closers, after listening to Gabe, Ka- Gabe Kapler talk about his closers over the past season, and this is not the philosophy of the San Francisco Giants, but something that I've tended to pick up through you know covering baseball is in the ninth inning, you want someone who's a high strikeout and low walk guy. You want the opposition to have the hardest possible time getting on base because when you get one guy on base it leads to tension when you get multiple guys on base things really start to slip for that closer because the final outs of the game really are the toughest they put more pressure on 
Jake McGee in 2020, 33 strikeouts, three walks. I really believe that 11 to one ratio will be the reason we see him in the early going. And if he's able to keep that ratio up, he will stay in that role. Tyler Rogers to me, he doesn't walk guys, but he also doesn't strike them out. So he's a better fit for seventh, eighth inning when you need a ground ball, when there's less pressure, when you can still go through the heart of the order, uh, but you don't necessarily need the strikeouts that you do to really keep guys off base when you're protecting one run leads because things can get funky in that ninth inning. Teams could bunt. They could do different things on the base pass. There's just more variance in that inning than uh, I think that, you know, the anti all-time closer, the pro closer by committee crowd would like to admit. And so that's why I do think that we will see Jake McGee at the beginning. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think there, I mean, there clearly is, you know, a, a different mental component to going into mm-hmm. the seventh inning, to going into the eighth inning, having guys behind you, having another inning, your team having another opportunity to score runs. Then in the ninth inning, when, you know, it's a one-two count, and there's two outs and that you are one strike away from winning that game. There is clearly an added mental tension. You, we've seen a number of relievers who were really effective setup players, uh, a set of pitchers who, when they got that closer role, just weren't the same pitcher. Um, and, and so there, I, to me, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think there's no denying there's something different about it. And again, walks anytime you're giving something away, the, the really, right. There are plenty of guys who do walk a couple, you know, more than you'd probably like, but those are the, you know, players who have such stuff, the Camilo Dovals, right. Who, mm-hmm. they, as long as they're near it, it's really hard to square them up. And they're able to sustain 220, 230 batting average on balls in play because their stuff is so effective. If you are not to that level and you're walking guys, it's a really fine window. And that's one of the things about Reyes Maranta is he was one of those guys, even though he was never really the Giants full-time closer, you could have seen in that role before the injury, but admittedly he was walking consistently four to six guys per nine innings. And you wonder again, you know, there's a limited room for error and coming off the shoulder surgery, the major surgery he had will, you know, it, it seems a bit rich to expect him to be able to jump into that role and be as effective and as dominant so quickly. Yeah. The thing about Maranta, I was looking into this the other day, the ERAs have been so low in his three major league seasons, two plus major league seasons, really. And that's why you immediately point to him and say 98 mile an hour, my 98 mile per hour fastball, wipeout slider, low ERA. Obviously he's a closer. But then you look a little more closely and you see 132 career appearances and 25 career leadoff walks. And that is walking the leadoff batter almost a quarter of the time he is entering a game. That's not sustainable for the ninth inning. That's really difficult for the ninth inning. I think there's a reason he has one career save. And it's not because Bruce Bochy didn't want him in that role when he was in his prime. I think it's because the Giants could really trust him uh, to, to not come in and not walk the first batter. He was always good enough to get the next three out. But man, that is, uh, that's tough to overcome. And so I do think that you know throwing more quality strikes to the first hitter when he comes in from the bullpen will be a major point of emphasis at the beginning of the season and particularly during spring training. Yeah, and one thing I am curious as we see the uh, extension of the runner on second base in extra inning, one thing I am curious about to see is as we sort of get to more, you know, this really isn't a factor necessarily save situations, but it's tied three to three in the ninth inning. It's a tie game in the ninth inning or you're behind by a run. If the, because we didn't see as much of it as I expected last season in that a pitcher, you want a different pitcher to start an inning with nobody on base versus a guy to start an inning with a runner on second base. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was one thing, you know, I, I was critical of Gabe Kapler's bullpen usage for various reasons. But one thing I thought is just 
the guys who are kind of higher variants with the strikeouts, to me, those are guys you're going to want to save. Obviously, Sam Coonrod's in Philadelphia now. But with someone who is like, well, if I'm in the 11th inning, I might want to go with Sam Coonrod over someone like Tyler Rogers, even yes. though in the ninth inning, I'd probably rather go with Rogers than Coonrod because, you know, and we saw this where Rogers would pitch in extra innings and he'd give up like two ground balls and get a strikeout, but that would be one run. And I do wonder if we see, since that rule is no longer a temporary thing, if that becomes a more conscious part of how we see teams maneuvering in these late close games. Yeah, I will say the point of contention that I found with Gabe Kapler's bullpen management, and I, I think he did a better job than a lot of fans give him credit for, and I will point to their second half ERA, which led the major leagues, uh, or, you know, last 40 games, which led the major leagues as uh, my, my point that, you know, he did a very good job. I will say, I, I don't know that Tyler Rogers is my guy for the 10th inning with a runner on second base. I don't know that he's the guy when you get to extra innings. And like you said, it is because of the ground balls and the giants for whatever reason would talk about his ability to get ground balls as a huge asset, but these are not, you know, your routine four threes or five threes. These are heavy spin awkwardly hit baseballs because he is throwing from the most awkward of arm angles. And so oftentimes, I mean, the guy's prone to giving up the Hunter Pence base hit. He is prone <laughs> to giving up the 10-foot the dribbler. And to me, you want to avoid that as much as possible in extra innings. So if you're in a close game and you think you're going to use Tyler Rogers, I would almost always pound the table for the seventh and eighth inning because he can be so effective. And I do think that he will improve upon the ERA from 2020 this season. I do think that Giants fans will appreciate him a lot more than they did last year in a 60-game sprint. But it's just harder when he's put into that uh, high-variance situation in the extra innings. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's the thing is just like the seventh inning is different than the ninth inning. You know, coming in with runners on base is different than coming in with the bases empty. Different relievers are going to be better in different circumstances depending on, you know, we're used to thinking about with platoons, right, where a left-handed batters at the plate or a right-handed batters at the plate. We're used to thinking about, oh, these pitchers are better in that situation. The same, I think, is true of the inning. The same, I think, is true of the runners on base and even um, the number of outs. And I think that's, again, when we talk about sort of what's sort of the next maybe innovation or unique new strategies we're thinking about, and Kapler is clearly – um, he's talked about being very open to these uh, deployments that we wouldn't have necessarily thought, you know, we wouldn't have expected a Dusty Baker, or a Felipe Alou or, or Bruce Bochy to, to implement. Um, I think that's something that we could see changing. And we've gotten this far in talking Giants. I'm happy about it because we didn't talk about the Padres or Dodgers. But <laughs> now I'm going to talk about the Padres or Dodgers with you because I haven't had the chance to talk about you after I know you described the Giants rotation as boom and bust. I'm, I, you know, I, I want you to workshop some names for the Dodgers and Padres rotations after, you know, after today, because again, you know, obviously the Giants have been clear. I think Farhan Zaidi told Andrew Bagley of the athletic after the Blake Snell trade, you know, it is what it is. I'm not going to say I'm happy about it, but you know, you, you, you're still trying to win. Obviously you're still trying to compete, but from where you sit, when you're looking at this team, how do you think that impacts both what Gabe Kapler's doing, what Farhan is doing, but also just impacts the players knowing that there's these two other teams that have gone all in on all in on all in and still have a lot of young prospects on the way? Well, you, want, you want names for the rotation. Uh, I'll just assign thunder and lightning. <laughs> which one's thunder? I don't know which one's lightning, but clearly they are in the National League West. And I think that it's going to have a larger effect on Giants hitters than it will on Giants pitchers, uh, just because 
there's no letdown in either of those rotations. There's no point where you can get to, you know, the third day of a series and say, okay, we're up against uh, a guy who's struggling this year. We're up against a guy who clearly doesn't have the same caliber of stuff as the number one or the number two pitcher uh, in the rotation. Well, that might be true for the Dodgers. Their fourth guy might be Julio Urias. And that might be true for the San Diego Padres. Their fourth or fifth guy could be Chris Paddock. And so I think that there's, uh, a, it's going to be very challenging in these long series for the Giants. But Kevin Gossman made a really interesting point the other day. He said, you know, he was in the AL East when the Yankees and the Red Sox beat up on one another. And those teams would get tired from playing each other in a weekend series, uh, you know, long Sunday night baseball games. And so you'd get into a situation where the midweek series would come around. The, uh, the Orioles, uh, who Gossman pitched for, would play against the Red Sox or play against the Yankees, and they'd take two of three. And I don't know that I really believe Kevin Gossman because I didn't look into those stats, and I, I can't even fathom the Orioles taking two of three, but he's not too far removed from you know the, that Orioles team that did make a, a wild card run, and he mm-hmm. was on that club. And so I, I do think there is something to that, and if the Giants are going to exceed expectations this year, it can't just be beating up on the Arizona Diamondbacks and it can't just be beating up on the Colorado Rockies. They, they've got to be able to do something against the Padres and Dodgers. They are going to be highly motivated and viewing them as must-win games, whereas I don't think that those teams will be looking at the Giants in the same light. Yeah, and that's where we sort of, you know, get into again. Obviously, each individual player is built differently, but there's something to be said for, um, I think there's two kind of competing factors. And one of it is that you make it to Major League Baseball, you probably get up for high stress, high competition games, right? That, you know, mm-hmm. you've been someone who is always able, or at least most often, you know, looking for that great competition, looking to thrive in it. And so I think there's something to be said for, like you said, Giants players looking at those series, circling them on the calendar and going, no one thinks we have a chance. You know, no one mm-hmm. thinks that we, we have any, uh, you know, chance to beat either of these teams. It's pretty much penciled in, that the Giants, Diamondbacks, and Rockies are all competing for third place in the National League West. I think that's going to motivate them. And I also think, though, there is something to be said for what I think will be interesting to see is that, as you mentioned, the not getting the sort of day off or not having the, all right, we're facing Todd Wellemeyer in the rotation now. You know, this, you know, nothing <laughs> Todd against Todd Wellemeyer. Wellemeyer. He's got nothing a book out. Oh, he does. Good for him. You know, I, I just all I remember him is just being the guy Madison Bumgarner replaced in the 2010 rotation. And but anyway, you know, like you don't have that person to look at. And I do think what is interesting, as you mentioned, is that there might be some of these guys who, you know, maybe some go down with injury. And even though, you know, again, the Dodgers will have Tony Gonsolin and Padres have Chris Paddock or Mackenzie Gore to choose from to replace that, replenish that depth. But even if, let's say, you know, a Hugh Darvish or a Trevor Bauer gets off to a slow start and is struggling. I do think one thing that is interesting, that's sort of a difference between, I guess, you know, like you mentioned, media journalist community and like athletes and players is that outsiders watching, uh, especially those who sort of scout the statistics, scout um, the numbers are much quicker to, I'm not gonna say lose respect, but to lower players a tier than I think other players are. And I think that's something that was something that happened with the Giants, where I think other teams, even as in after 2016, the Giants obviously pretty consistently struggled, even the veterans who had a lot of all-star appearances and obviously World Series rings on their resumes that, you know, people looked at the batting average on ball and plays and the exit velocities and said, this team isn't 
of the quality of the you know caliber it once was. It, I, it was always interesting is I felt like when you talk to players around the league or when you heard players talking about it, they had not, you know, sort of had that delineation. They still considered the Giants a team that had a lot of people who had been to all-star games, had won World Series. And I think it'll be interesting to see, again, if a guy like, you know, you Darvish or whoever's struggling, I think there might be a quicker movement from people away from the game to say, all right, this is that sort of weaker part of the rotation where the players on the field still have respect for this player, you know, was a was a Cy Young candidate or, you know, is, is an elite player. I think that'll be an interesting dynamic to see play out from the player's psyche. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, as soon as you uh, were starting this conversation and opening this, uh, this dialogue, I thought about an interaction I had on Zoom over the weekend with Matt Whistler. Uh, we were talking about, you know, one of the reasons that he wanted to sign with the Giants. Well, of course, the Giants probably gave him more money than anyone else. They gave him a guaranteed contract and the chance to just solidify himself in a bullpen role. But what he also said is the San Francisco Giants are only seven years removed from their last World Series, and they've still got guys on this team who know how to win. And I'm thinking, geez, when Evan Longoria and Andrew McCutcheon were traded to the Giants, I think that you could still talk about the Giants having that World Series caliber tradition and that World Series caliber mentality in the clubhouse. I'm not so sure that seven years removed after four losing seasons, you still can, but it does really highlight the differences in the way that you know media views things and the way the players views, view things because they're still open to the idea that the Giants could be a force to be reckoned with because they've got Buster Posey, Brandon Crawford, Brandon Belts, and guys who you know, been in the league and had long track records of success, whether it's Evan Longoria, whether uh, it's Johnny Cueto. And so they are still viewed in the eyes of players as a veteran team uh, with a lot of scrappy young guys who are motivated and hungry. And they're viewed as, you know, a team who can be dangerous at times if you're not careful. And so I do think that fans tend to look at projections and say 74, 78 wins. That's not exciting. But other teams look at the San Francisco Giants and say, okay, there are pieces here that make them dangerous. That's why we must take them seriously, and that's why we've got to bring it. Yeah, it's interesting. And you mentioned Buster Posey in that. Obviously, opted out last season, um, you know, due to the COVID nineteen pandemic for his family. We saw the second overall pick in twenty eighteen, or yeah, twenty eighteen. Joey Bart make his debut, struggle. Patrick Bailey, another catcher drafted in the first round. We've seen Ricardo Genovese, a catching prospect, have a little resurgence, or I guess not resurgence, but you know, gain some. Uh, have a career year in the Myers in 2019. He's in spring training. You know, Buster Posey's in the last year of his contract. You know, I, I think we've both or will at various points write the what if this is Posey's last year in the Giants uniform article. He's already addressed it in spring training. Head, what are your expectations for Posey this year? What do you think would be a success for him? What do you think um, would be a disappointment? And I guess more importantly, or ultimately for Giants fans, what do you think he has to do to be wearing a Giants uniform in 2022? So it's funny you asked this question because I was talking about this with Adam Copeland earlier this week of KMBR. And I said that I think that Buster Posey is a better fit for the 2022 San Francisco Giants than he is to play this outsized role that Farhan Zaidi and Gabe Kapler have been talking about on the 2021 Giants. They are still talking about Buster Posey as, you know, being the leader of this team. And of course he is inside the clubhouse, but you think about leadership as, you know, one of your best players on the field. And so I think that uh, I, I don't know from a statistics perspective, I don't know from a games played perspective, what Buster Posey would need to do this season to feel accomplished, probably hitting around 300, improving the average to the point where it was pre-injury, which is all the way back, I think 2018. And 
you know, just getting the feel for the catching position back. I think that he will be the anchor behind the plate and probably providing gold glove caliber defense, where if it's not gold glove caliber, it's very close to it. But I do think that, you know, moving forward, there is a role for Buster Posey to be back in 2022. What does that look like? Probably a part-time catcher, probably a part-time first baseman, and maybe some DH opportunities, maybe the opportunity to split time with Joey Bart behind the plate, because if the DH comes to the National League, as we expect in 2022, Mark, then Bart will not be catching every day. They'll want to get him off his feet. They'll want to give him DH opportunities and potentially even first base opportunities, depending on pitching matchups. And so I think with Buster Posey's value right now as a player, to me, it's clearly he's you know a better defensive catcher than offensive catcher can that change absolutely he can still rewrite the rest of his career with one really strong season and uh you know get people thinking again about him as an elite two-way catcher but right now i do think that there is a path to him being on the 2022 roster and i think that there is a path to him playing a really important role on it yeah and that's one of the things i wrote about is i said you know one competition I'm going to be watching and it's not one that's going to impact the opening day roster, but it is ultimately the competition, the competition for who will be the giants future catcher. And that, you know, again, it could be that the giants are kind of going to wait these things out. Posey becomes a free agent, maybe resigns for a year or two. Maybe he doesn't Bart becomes the starter. Then a Patrick Bailey or Ricardo Genovese joins. And again, you mentioned they kind of play with the DH. And so they both get to kind of share time as we've seen the Dodgers do with players like Austin Barnes and Will Smith, et cetera. But, you know, there's a part of me that wonders again, you know, Joey Bart wasn't drafted by this front office regime. And again, that's not to say they don't like Joey Bart as a player. He's obviously one of the best prospects in baseball. It's just something that, you know, I think if you told me that Joey Bart is ready for, you know, is ready to contribute at the start of next season, you know, are the giants in a position where they are willing to give up what he could potentially get on the trade market as such a valuable catcher. You know, right now, if you're willing to trade Joey Bart as the Giants, you can probably, whoever becomes available on the trade market, if you're willing to include Joey Bart, you can probably beat or match anyone's offer, right? Even if a team has a catcher, you can move Bart to someone else and make a three-team deal probably work. Like, there's an incredible value in that. And if this front office is high on Patrick Bailey as someone who could be ready in two three years or Ricardo Genovese is someone who could be ready in two years. You wonder about is there um, if Bart has a difficult spring, if he stumbles a bit or if Posey has a resurgent spring and he looks like he's going to follow in the footsteps of Brandon Crawford and Brandon belt who had these resurgent years after the extended layoff that led to uh, because of COVID-19 that I think play the role in their offensive um, they're them. They're excelling offensively last year. I wonder if that does change that calculus. Yeah, I, I do think that that's a question that I'm going to want to unpack over the next several weeks, especially after watching Joey Bart with the adjustments that he will be expected to make during spring training after the challenges that he faced uh, during his 33-game, 104-at-bat sample uh, during the 2020 season when he was clearly pushed ahead of schedule because the Giants did not have uh, any better options at the catcher position. So I really do want to see what he looks like during spring training, how he implemented new training into his offseason regimen and whether he's able to make the adjustments that uh, the Giants are so confident that he will be making uh, because they, they have talked pretty candidly about how he is not ready for the major league level by opening day. They don't think that there's anything that will happen during spring training that will change that. And so I, I think that it's going to be fascinating to see unfold over the next few weeks. And clearly one of the big storylines of spring training is the Giants catcher position as a whole. What can Buster Posey bring you? How does he look relative to how he looked 
uh, you know, at the end of the 2019 season, at the beginning of 2020 spring training? And what does Joey Bart look like in terms of his improvement? Is he more comfortable behind the plate? Is he quieter from a movement standpoint behind the plate? Is he more comfortable seeing and picking up breaking balls and doing damage on pitches in the strike zone? These are all things that I think will play into the calculus of how the this front office evaluates him because they inherited him with a very little time in the uh, minor leagues. And so he was almost uh, kind of a fresh product for them. And I think that they're still learning Joey Barton. I think that Joey Bart is still learning them. Yeah. And, you know, with that, that's something that I think will obviously play out over the course of the season, especially if there's triple A where, or triple A, I guess, potentially double A, but wherever Bart is playing, assuming a minor league season gets underway, but ultimately at the major league level with what we talked about with the Padres, with what we talked with the Dodgers, even though we both understand the Giants players, they're going to be trying to win the National League West, win a World Series. From the sky, bird's eye view, what is a successful season for the San Francisco Giants this year? 82 and 80. All right. I don't, I don't really care how they get there. I don't care who develops, who doesn't, who flames out, who has a great season. I think that 82 and 80 and uh, is, is an acceptable result. I will rephrase that. That's an acceptable result because this franchise has never had five consecutive losing seasons. I think a good season is making the playoffs. And I know that projections do not expect them to make the playoffs. I know that they play in the most difficult division in baseball, but that is the standard that Farhan Zaidi, Scott Harris, and Gabe Kapler are holding this franchise to. So good would be making the playoffs as a wild card team acceptable would be 82 and 80 and steady signs of progress. However, those come, whether it be Joey Bart developing, whether it be Elliot Ramos making the majors and becoming a key part of this lineup during the second half of the season, whether it be other players emerging as key parts of the future core. I think that those are some things that need to happen for the Giants to consider this year. Good, acceptable, a success, however you want to phrase it. Definitely. I think that 500 mark is an easy thing to look at. I mean, you know, people have talked about the building of the 2010 uh, to through 2014 dynasty, right? That's preceded by a number of seasons below 500 that changes in 2009 when they compete for the wild card and fall a bit short, but ultimately it's the foundation that's built then that makes um, the difference. And my final question for you, Carrie, it comes from one of our viewers. And again, make sure to leave those five-star reviews wherever you get your podcast. If you do make sure to include a question and I will answer it alongside my, my guess, this comes from, um, SF Giants 2018, how aggressive can the Giants be in the 2021 to 2022 offseason on the five major shortstops? You know, it's Carlos Correa, Seager, Lindor, Story Baez, on Noah Syndergaard, Chris Bryant, etc. And how aggressive do you think they will be under Farhan Zaid? I think that they should be, can be, and will be the most aggressive team in Major League Baseball next offseason, bar none. I think that if this Giants team is going to be successful and is going to challenge the Dodgers and the Padres and is going to make the most of all the payroll flexibility that they will be afforded next season when all these major contracts come off the books, there is no better way to get back into things than seeing your prospects evolve this year, which we've already talked about in Joey Bart, Elliot Ramos, Sean Jelly, and many others, and then supporting them with the cast that you need to make the postseason and to build up a quality roster. And so I do think that if they are not the top spender in free agency next off season, something will have gone wrong. That is the closer of the sound of the popcorn podcast, Terry Crowler coming in last minute. We had some scheduling things fall through elsewhere. And uh, thank you for coming on Kerry uh, last minute, a great conversation as always. We'll have to have you back on for a third time 
at some point. Where can the people uh, keep in touch, keep in tune with your work? Uh, Bay Area News Group, uh, mercurynews.com backslash Giants, the best place to find all of my work, all of my thoughts on the Giants. A lot of people uh, wonder why I'm not more active on Twitter, and it's because uh, I basically put everything that I could possibly write about the San Francisco Giants uh, on the Mercury News website. And so it's all right there. If you are so kind as to be interested in a subscription to the Mercury News to follow our Giants coverage, please, I beg you, click on a giant story and then click the manage subscription button. Uh, at the top, that will tell my bosses that you subscribe because you were reading a giant story. And that means a lot to them. And uh, in turn, it would mean a lot to me and allow me to stay employed, which is uh, the name of the game. So I appreciate the opportunity to plug my work, Mark. No problem. Anytime. And this has been Sound the Foghorn, Fansided's official San Francisco Giants podcast. To check out our coverage of the San Francisco Giants, go over to aroundthefoghorn.com. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I'm your host, Mark DeLucchi. Follow me on Twitter at M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. Unlike Kerry, who makes sure to put his work and you know in one place to make sure that people can read it. I'm all over the place on Twitter, so feel free to give you a follow there as well. Thank you all for tuning in. Until next time, have a wonderful week and stay safe.